Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Before we start, I would like to draw your attention to my weekly email newsletter, Friday Focus. Each Friday, I focus on one topic with one action arising. The link to sign up is in the show notes or head over to amyrolinson.com and sign up right now. Today on Focus on Why, I am joined by the wonderful Scott MacArthur. Hello, Scott. How are you doing? Hello, Amy. And it's lovely to be here. I'm doing fine, actually. I'm doing very well. Excellent. And where are you calling from today? I live in a little town called Morton and Marsh, uh, which is in the Cotswolds. Very nice too. And I know it well. I used to be from around that area, from nearby Stratford-on-Avon. Ah, lovely place. One of my favourite places in the world. I love it to bits. Really? Yeah. Even with all the tourists? Well, it's been great during lockdown because we didn't have as many tourists. But uh, yeah, there are, I mean, I don't think Stratford is as bad as Oxford, uh, which is another local town. It's, in, it's infested with cars and Stratford's a bit better. But yeah, I know what yeah. you're saying. I know what you're saying. Oh, good. Mm. So what is it you're doing at the moment other than avoiding tourists in their cars? <laughs> well, I, I spend most of my time at the moment um, broadcasting, to be honest. I, When lockdown came along, I was a professional speaker and I had what 23 keynotes in my three months uh, coming up and they all just went like that. Um, so it was very difficult. I had a couple of weeks where, if I'm absolutely honest, I went off the rails because it was it was difficult to deal with. But then um, I decided, well, can't do this. So I thought, well, what could I do? And I usually I used to pay somebody to do all my my filming and my editing, etc. And I thought, well, why don't I start to do it myself? So I started to do it, and then a friend of mine suggested that we do some broadcasting. I hadn't a clue what to broadcast about because normally I speak about the future of work, technology and science. Um, but it was, that was too big a topic, so I wondered what I could do. Then someone said, another friend said to me, look, you're quite a good storyteller, mate. Do a storytelling broadcast. So I started doing that. Uh, and I've now done, a, I've just done my 56th episode um, of that, uh, which has been terrific. Um, I've met, you know, some incredible people from Emmy-winning actresses to professors of psychology, biology, to zoo chief executives, to poets, to a forklift truck driver, you know, so it's been amazing. Um, and then I have another half to my life where something else that I'm very passionate about is music. And for the last 20 years, I've run a, a very successful uh, website in Scotland. You can probably gather from my slight Scottish accent. I'm from north of the border. And uh, that has taken off during lockdown uh, because people have been stuck at home. We started a Facebook group that went from zero to 11,000 members in three months, and we're still gaining 50 people every week. Um, that's been amazing. Friday night broadcast, then after show party every Friday night. And uh, we're having our first live get together in December. I put the tickets up on sale and they sold out in about 20 minutes. I mean, it's it's been unbelievable. So that, that that's it, really. I mean, I'm still doing a little bit of speaking, but the market's still, uh, you know, we're still waiting for that to recover. So I'm focused on the thinking and the broadcasting, basically. Amazing. And your keynotes were centred on the future of work technology and science. You did not foresee what was going to happen. Uh, I certainly knew about the situation with viral 
uh, threats. That's something that we've been looking at for decades. There's nothing new in viral threats. I think it's it's more the response to the viral threat that that no one was predicting. None of the none of the virologists were predicting that. So, um, so yeah, yeah. My my main my main focus is on what we call uh, disruptive technologies, which is nanotech, AI, and biotech. So. The, the, the evidence that's quite quite interesting. I mean, the reason that we've dealt with coronavirus so well is because of the exponential growth of biotech, because you would never have had a, a three-month lead time for a, you know, from a pathogen to a virus uh, to a you know a range of vaccines without the exponential growth of, of biotech. So it's been amazing. Um so yeah, it kind of proved one of the points, but no, I didn't predict it. Nobody did. Nobody did. No, and and you said that you sort of went off the rails for those two yeah. weeks, and you know you were not alone. Although yeah. everybody did feel alone because they weren't able to really reach out and connect. It, it did yeah. feel a very isolated period. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the the, the probably the music side has been more telling for me because we came together. I mean, it was a friend and I who had never done, neither of us had done any broadcasting before. We just literally pressed go on it, Amy. And we just went go. We didn't, we didn't have the right equipment. We didn't have the right microphones, nothing. And 10,000 people showed up, you know, and we've now had all these people saying, if it hadn't been for you guys, I don't know what would have happened to me. And so it's actually been, I, 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 this is not my area. You know, I'd never thought I'd ever get into this, but it's been like a proper community we've created. And I'm, I'm actually really excited about meeting them all because it, it, it's going to be weird because they're all friends. You know, I've got a, a large group of people I've never met who have become quite dear friends you know, virtually. So it's it's quite weird, to be honest. Um, and I'm not the most sociable person either. So that's even weird as well. You know, so the whole thing's just weird. Uh, so, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. It has been weird. And yeah. and yet, as a, as a speaker, you're your profession is built around engaging yeah. and building rapport with a community, yeah, with absolutely. your audience. So in some respects, you haven't really changed that much. I think that's right. I mean, I, I call myself a professional storyteller rather than a professional speaker. Um, and stories connect. You know, I mean, one of the things that I say at the end of my show is, you know, I hope you have a story filled week because you never know one of those stories could change the world, you know, and and that's true. You know, the the, the, the power of story has just proven itself to me in the last few months and where uh, you know governments and companies have failed to use story well we've seen the results you know it's uh it, it's it's in plain sight that storytelling is powerful i honestly though i never thought about it like that before I, i'd thought about it for engagement but i'd never really thought about the the bigger picture you know the the, the much bigger picture so it's been you know, it's been good for me from with that in that respect amy so going from a position of it all being very difficult and losing the, that yeah. business from a financial perspective yeah. and reinventing yourself and creating a new way of communicating with an audience yeah. and then finding actually that one of your passions being music yeah. led you to that audience. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, I, and again, I didn't, I mean, I knew when I mean, we wrote a book about it well, 15 years ago and it did really well, but I never thought, I mean, everyone's in their 50s, 60s and 70s now, and I never thought they were out there and interested in the tech. They are. <laughs> and it's so niche that you wouldn't believe that it's so large. Um, but yeah, so that there's been a lot of lessons in it for me, and I have definitely changed my perspective on how I'm going to, you know, when I get back into when the, the market opens up again, I'll think differently, I, I suspect, Amy. I, th I think I'll think differently. We'll see. And you said you've met some incredible people along yeah. your journey, some of them being 
poets, doctors, yeah. actresses, psychologists, and of course your forklift driver. Don't leave, <laughs> don't leave them out. He's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, will your keynotes include different stories? Absolutely. I mean, I I, um, I don't have an off-the-shelf keynote. I don't have a keynote. I. I tend to look at the the challenge that the, the customer has set me, and then I will write a keynote in that context. But what I learned many years ago when I, I was working in the big consulting world of KPMG, I, I learned that um, it's good to have like a, a backpack full of stories, and that's where I spend my time. So it's almost like mix and match now for me. I've got about 300 different stories. It changes all the time. I'm developing it constantly. I call myself an archaeologist of my own life. Um, and I, I basically pick and mix. It's like modules, Amy. I just pick and mix and then put them together to form an, another keynote. So that's how I do it. Um, so no two are the same. Sometimes they're similar, but no two are the same. Uh, and uh, I know this is a podcast, but behind me, I've got all sorts of objects, and each one of those objects is actually a story. Um, and it means that I can mix and match those stories in the moment. So if a client asked me to talk about something, I can immediately you know, grab a skull or grab a clock or whatever, and I can show them it and I can talk about that artifact. Hence why my show is called Artifact Live. So it, you know, it's about trying to, I, I don't see enough storytelling in, in the corporate world. It's very rare to see storytelling in the corporate world. There's an awful lot of regurgitation. There's like people that, that I know they're very popular, but I'm not drawn by into the, the guru world. Uh, I'm not impressed with Simon Sinek. I'm not impressed because a lot of the time these guys are telling other people's stories. I think you should start with your own stories. And um, and for me, that's been a very rich experience, uh, has led me in all directions. I had no idea. I'm not going to pretend this was something I, I, ended, I, I aimed at and went for. I didn't. It was emergent, Amy. It was like an organic process where I realized, gosh, I remember that time. Did I, re I did that. You know, and it was that sort of moments of... Uh, of well, in the meditative practices, they call it Kensho, and it's moments of sudden insight. Uh, and, and I think that is what I've been able to do for myself. It's almost like self-therapy, if you like, almost. But then the stories come out. No one can copy them because they're your stories. You know, I don't need to remember them because they're my stories. You know, so I, it, it becomes a, a, it feeds and feeds and feeds. So it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And it's really interesting, isn't it? Because you think as, as this, things happen to you. Yeah. You, you don't necessarily think in that moment, oh, this will be a fantastic story in the future. That's right. And you call yourself your, the archaeologist of your own life. Yeah. Or was it, was it archaeologist or architect? Archaeologist. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of people talk about being an architect of their life because they're creating what's forward. Yeah. But you're, you're actually reflecting back. I am. Yeah. And then that, that, that reflection backwards pro produce, makes me go forward because I can then, you know, if someone... If I meet a client and they're looking at, you know, they're, they're wondering how to, I don't know, it could be anything, any corporate thing like, you know, how do we improve our, our sales pipeline? Well, I can help them with that because I, I know about that. I know how stories, it's that, you know, facts tell, but stories sell. Facts tell, stories sell. And because of that, you know, they're immediately grabbed by it. And then I can tell them stories and they go, oh, and then I encourage them to have their own stories. You know, I, I, I make them think, because you can't predict the future. You know, you can't, even though, I, you know, I look, I talk about the future of work. Nobody's ever been good at predicting the future. Um, just doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. So a lot of, of my podcasts are, are stories. They're guests yeah. just as yourself coming on the show and sharing incredible stories of, of what they've achieved or what yeah. they've done or what they've experienced in some way. 
I then intersperse those episodes with my reflections, which ha then have consequences, have actions attached to those. Yeah. And essentially, that's what you're doing. You're, you're reflecting on what's happened to you mm -hmm. and seeing how you can apply that not only to your own life, but also reflect that into business, reflect that into relevance for others. Yeah. And it's why, you know, people say, you know, ignore history at your own uh, cost, because uh, th there are lessons there. I mean, we have had pandemics before. We have had artificial intelligence for over 100 years. We have, you know, a lot of the things that people talk about, like they're new, they're not new. They're just not new. You know, they talk about things like, you know, racism and diversity and all that. None of that is new. None of it. Um, and, you know, we forget at our own risk what we've done and failed with it because we're human beings after all. We haven't changed. We're the same, you know, biologically, we're identical to the human beings that were around 150,000 years ago. So there's no, you know, we, we need to pick that up. That's where there's new fields like, you know, in, uh, evolutionary psychology has come up in the last 10 years because they're thinking exactly the same thing. What can we learn from, you know, how we, we cope with different contexts, different environments? So there's nothing new in the world. Uh, and uh, there's a Scottish saying, um, we're all Jock Tamsin's bairns. Uh, and that basically means we're all the same. Um, um, so a lot of it is is very easy to 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 pretend you understand the future, but you don't. You can you can see the trends, and that's as far as you can take it. And because I'm a former scientist, I worked mainly in you know biology. I'm a psychologist as well, did my master's in psychology. Um, but I I tried to bring all of those things together and use stories as the glue. So that's how I do it. So this is this is really fascinating for me because. I feel like I've come to this whole epiphany late in life in terms of, oh my goodness, how could I not have known so many things that I know now? Yeah. And and at what point would that have been really useful to have known sooner in life? And I don't do regret. Regret is futile. No. But but the, the point of my of this epiphany is such that there have been, as you say, so much has come before us and yet we seem to have this desire to so explore and experience it for the first time yes. for ourselves yeah and as you say ignore history at, at our peril and we do we do ignore history time. we do and it's it's there it's it's like a, a map it's yeah. a guide yeah and i mean the way the way i when I mean, you've you've picked up on one of the metaphors i use the map because my 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 job is to take it beyond the map. You know, I, I, there's all this undiscovered country to misquote Shakespeare, you know, and and that, I, I think my stories and in other people's stories can provide the compass, you know, in the uncharted place because, you know, we, we haven't been, you know, although that much has happened before, we haven't been stuck in our houses like we have been in, in the modern context. We have historically, but not in the modern context. So I think the stories can help you through that. They can help you through it. Uh, and you become quite, um, I mean, one of, one of my, uh, and I developed this when I was an HR director, so back in my, my professional career, but one of the most worrying competencies I've ever met in anybody is certainty. And I, I am absolutely opposed to certainty. And I, if anyone appears certain to me about any subject, I know they don't know anything about that subject. They may well think they do. Um, but they don't because certitude is not a good sign. There's not a scientist on the planet is certain about what they're studying. Uh, and yet all these Facebook jockeys are all certain about how the science works. And it's hilarious. When you, uh, and the other thing that builds on what you said, the, the more the older I get and the more of my stories I'm becoming more familiar with, the less I know. You know, and I'm a ferocious learner. I mean, I read three books a week. I'm, you know, constantly learning.
And the more I learn, the less I know I know, if that makes sense. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. Well, it, it does. And, yeah. and you know, you, you've just sort of quoted Shakespeare or misquoted yeah. Shakespeare, however you choose. And I will bring in the the fool to think he's wise and the wise man knows himself a fool. Absolutely. You know, so and and that is so true. So it's learner and achiever are my two highest strengths. Right, okay. And and I recently did the strengths finder test with my son. Yeah. And they were his bottom two <laughs> right okay and it was like that's interesting that's probably why he's not enjoying academia right now yeah because empathy is his highest strength oh, right. okay as as are restorative and winning others over and and it was just really interesting to see what were his his priorities or nice. his strengths in that space yeah now i'm with you on the certainty yeah because everybody seeks certainty everybody wants that security that safety yeah and that's what threw us all into a state of of the unknown last year when lockdown happened yeah and everybody was clinging on for how do we get that certainty back well you know if it wasn't actually there but they thought they had this yes. this sort of re reality of it was there for them so tell me more about why you're so opposed to People such as cynic, yeah, yeah, because they doesn't mean he, one. He's never had a job, uh, but two, <laughs> um, people like that. And I, I'm not going to pick on Simon Cynic. I mean, I'm sure I know a lot of people like him, but uh, the guru movement is something that it's a bit like. Um, it's quite funny, but also quite telling. You hear a lot of people saying around, for example, environmental science, how the 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 older people caused the problem, and the older people are damaging the planet. For the younger people and the younger people all care about it that's absolute nonsense because the younger people are the ones that i mean there are i think uh, uh, greta has got about 15 million followers on instagram don't quote me it might be 20 million yeah the kardashians have got quarter of a billion followers and that is the most unethical unenvironmental and it's young people most of greta's followers are people over 30 you know, so the whole thing is is mixed up in a mess. It's not, but it's actually just human beings. That's all it is, all it is. And I think some of the 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 likes of the gurus, they'll give you a, they'll give you they'll spout something, and they usually, I mean, they start with why thing that you know that cynic the the golden circle. He did he didn't invent that. He talks as if he did, but he didn't. Um, that's been around since that's from a Stoic principle of three thousand years old. You know, so um. And and I and I think the sort of fadism, particularly in the workplace, is all led by a lot of that. You know, it's led by, you know, I mean, Dan, it's not fair. Daniel Pink's a brilliant author, a brilliant journalist, but he's also in the cycle because he's not he's not qualified to do it. You know, and neither is cynic. Um, but the problem, I think, the main problem is that the scientists are not very good at communicating, and they will admit that. Um, so you you do, and I'm, I'm contradicting myself, but hey, I don't mind contradicting myself. Um, hence why you need a cynic or a Pink. To talk about these things because the scientists aren't very good at it. Um, and indeed, if a scientist is in the communication of science, they're often ridiculed uh, by the scientific community. So it's very complex. And that's why I worry about the cer certainty. I mean, Simon Sinek will put a quote like, have a good day on LinkedIn, and 10,000 people will comment how it's a brilliant comment. Really? You know, so no, I, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I've read all the books. I, I mean, I wouldn't say anything without having read them. I have read them all, um, and they're okay. But um, that's why I would always look other places um, for that sort of, what's the word? I I'm more interested in poets than I am in gurus.
Mm. There's more in the poets than there is in all these gurus added together. Tell me about the poets. Oh, um, I, I became obsessed with poetry when I was at school, and it was mainly the the First World War poets, you know, the Sassoons and Owens of this world, Dokiet, Decoramest, and all that sort of stuff that I'm sure most of your listeners have heard of. But in the last 20 years, I've become infatuated by poetry, the likes of John O'Donoghue and uh, David White come to mind. And they they are the guys with the compasses. They're, they're the guys beyond the maps. Um, I, I'm one of, one of David White's stone. I, I had this amazing experience, Amy, where I was, I was at an event with David, David White, who if you have never heard of David White, he's an extraordinary poet. And I was at one of his events, and there was only 10 of us there. It was a little event in the Cotswold, in a Cotswold Hotel. And I sat having a glass of red wine with him uh, late into the night, talking nonsense, you know, just talking about our upbringing because we've got a very similar upbringing. And um, I asked him about his poetry, and I said, David, I've got to tell you this, I, I don't understand a lot of your poetry. And he turned to me and he said, neither do I. <laughs> you know, and a lot of what he... It's almost as like the Jack Kerouac's, the beat movement back in the 50s. Um, a lot of it's stream of consciousness stuff, but every now and again, something hits. And there's one of his poems, it goes, it goes like this, and I won't do the whole thing. It goes, um, start close in with the step you don't want to take. Not the first, not the second, but the step you don't want to take. Now that is a beautiful and what I call a generative poem. It brings out you know, what are the steps I don't want to take? And then it starts you thinking, it's generative. And uh, if there's one thing I'd like to achieve in my, my, my last quarter of my life and uh, of my career would be to support the, the whole idea of poetry being much higher on the curriculum and something that we could spend much more time thinking about because I think it's the most noble of, of human arts. I absolutely adore it. It's, it's wonderful, and, and I love that poem. I'm going to check it out, Start Close In by David White, and that's White oh, with a Y, isn't it? It is, yes. yes. Brilliant. Yeah, I mean, so you just outlined your vision yeah. for the last quarter of your life. Yeah. Maybe maybe there's more. Oh, I yeah, mean, there's who more. Knows? <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of just touching back on, on what Daniel Pink was focused on, and that was autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Yeah. How do those elements fit in to your world? Um, I'm not sure about those sorts of things. Uh, I think a lot of that movement, are. it's very easy to talk about, um, this is contentious, but people talk about diversity in the workplace. There is no evidence that diverse, a diverse workplace is a more successful workplace, but they do, everyone says there is. There isn't. And, and it's a real challenge for the public, and I'm not blaming the public, and I'm I'm not even blaming the the diversity inclusion, uh, you know, community for saying that. It's so difficult. It's so difficult to research these areas. I mean, there there are many many academics now say that evidence based uh, research in business is almost pointless because it's so complex. So to answer your question directly, those I'm not sure about them. I don't know. I don't know enough about them. Um, the, model, the original model was a guy called Khan who came up with the SAM model. It's uh, uh, availability, meaning, and uh, safety. Uh, and then they've all, all the contemporary guys have built on Khan's model. So there's, there is, there is some, some academic credibility to it. But even there, there's not, even Khan himself says he's not sure about his model. So, you know, I think a lot of it, 
people just need to go behind the gurus and find out, go to what we, in science we talk about, go to first sources, go to the source of the, the actual information. And the closer to the source you get in a lot of this stuff, the lesser the impact is. So that's why we get fads. That's why we get, I mean, you mentioned strength finders. Strength finders is okay, um, but strength finders uh, isn't always what they call repeatable. Uh, your son's profile will change as it gets older. Um, you know, so all of these things are, are, there are layers and layers and layers of complexity. And if you ever talk to a professional academic psychologist, they will not even consider these things. You know, they think, no, no, no. You know, they're, they're, they are not repeatable. They are not academic. They're of no, they're, they're like astronomy. Sorry, astrology. You know, they're, they're no better. I mean, like Myers-Briggs is no more accurate than, a, than, than looking at the stars. There's, there's no... It helps people, which is great, but it's in terms of validity, it's no more accurate than Mystic Meg. Mystic Meg. And this is and this is the thing, isn't it? That people are reaching out to hold on to something because they yeah. want to. It goes back to Frankel, you know, what's the meaning of life? Yeah. And instead of of that concept, it's a case of what is life asking of you? Yeah. And and so people want to have these boxes that they can they put themselves in they like to have that it goes back to the certainty they like to yeah. have that security of belonging of like i'm an enfj perfect i know where i fit now yeah. you know and as you say so what is it that focus on why means for you that's a really good question actually and i i the answer again is i don't know uh because if i look at my biography my focus on why probably looks at fear and missing out you know that's the honesty of it it's not i want to change the world you know i, I mean it's not i mean i grew up in a in a, a quite a, a difficult uh, environment uh, everybody around me had more than we had i ended up even when i was a research scientist i was living in a squat you know so i always feel to this day i always feel like i'm only two days away from going back to having nothing again been back on the streets so um for me that that's probably the the I mean, when I tell my stories, a lot of them are about the experiences I had trying to get out of that and how, you know, mentors helped me and encouraged me and how I, it was almost like a fight to get out of the to that poverty. And it's still the same. It hasn't got any better, not for me, but you know, for other people, it's it's horrendous. Um, and for me, that's a much more important issue than much of what you see on on LinkedIn, et cetera, at the moment. It's still that that poverty, that academic poverty as well as um, you know, financial poverty. So I think that's part of it. The other part of it is that I, I said earlier, I mean, I meant it. I, I love learning. And I think that's because I wasn't good at it when I was a kid. I had learning difficulties and all the rest of it when I was a child. Um, I, because we moved around so much because of my dad's job, I, had, um, I was taught English in the Caribbean on a radio ham. And then I moved to Scotland and they taught a different language. They didn't teach English at the time. They taught a thing called ITA, which... It's a, a phonetic form of English. Blew me out of the water. I had no idea. I was being told my spelling was wrong, but actually it was right. And so all this sort of stuff happened. And I think all of that had an impact on me um, as, a, as a person who becomes more and more curious about what the hell is going on here. Um, so I think it's a long answer to your question, but probably fear of missing out is the reality of it. But the, if I'm on a, you know, if I'm, if I'm trying to gloss it, I would say my passion for learning, my absolute ferocious curiosity well uh, yeah i mean i'm with you I, for, that's something that is so important for me and and that's why I, I sort of find it difficult when others don't have that same thirst or hunger for increasing their knowledge base yeah and yes i also understand you know going right back to 
we're all different. Oh, we're, all you know, different. We're, all, we're all we're all unique. Yeah. But in the same breath, you know, there's there's that common community space that we we do we are social animals we, we are yeah. animals that seek out others yeah. for for lots of different reasons absolutely I mean, there was so a, tell me a, sorry go on. Uh, there was there was a book written um, called the machine stops and in that book uh written by believe it or not written by em forster who uh, wrote passage to india and all these pretty i think are pretty awful books but machine stops a very short book he wrote it in 1909. That was the year that Tolstoy died. One of my heroes, uh, Tolstoy, died in 1909. And it basically said, it's basically about a mother and a son, and everyone lives in a little pod under the ground because the earth has become polluted. And everybody spends nearly all their time studying secondhand knowledge and then sharing that knowledge with other people across the world using what is effectively the internet. That was in 1909, right? Now, I started by saying no one could predict the future, and they can't. Ian e. Foster was lucky. That's one of the books that's turned out to be, you know, right. You can cherry-pick the things. But for me, um, you're absolutely right, and I think a lot of people have forgotten. The, the point of the book is we need to be social, but they had destroyed the social element of it. Uh, so I do not want to be spending the rest of my life online. Um, a lot of other people do, and that's their, they, they are absolutely nothing wrong with that for them. But I cannot wait. Tonight, I'm going to a concert tonight, and I cannot wait. I mean, I, I normally go to a concert three times a week, four times a week if I can, yeah? But for a year and a half, I haven't been to a gig. So tonight, ah, gosh, is, I'm, re I'm so looking forward to getting into a room with lots of smelly, horrible people drinking Guinness and having a blinking good time. I cannot wait. And and I think we, 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 we forget that at our peril because... A lot of companies that are now talking about, you know, people working from home. If it's an option and it's good for that person, then that's fine. But generally, and you said earlier, you know, we're all unique. We are, but we are herd animals. We 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 like groups, and boy, do I miss being in groups. Gosh, I miss it. And and I'm also I'm, I'm a wallflower. I mean, again, another contradiction. I'm a wallflower, so I don't get up and dance. I don't, but I just like to be with people, you know. And um, so it for me, uh, yeah. Let's go to this technology and get onto real life again, please. Yeah, you, you talk about the herd yeah. instinct that we have, and and I guess that's why, as you mentioned earlier, the Kardashians have their quarter of a billion followers because you know they they are just pulling the herd in one direction, and Greta has her herd. Yeah. So tell me, what what I'm looking to understand more of is yeah. you talked earlier about wanting to take it beyond the map using your compass to go into an uncharted place what does that look like for you that's, that's another good question amy thank you for asking me that question it probably means doing things that people wouldn't expect you let me let me tell you a story the best way to do it is tell you a story um a few years ago i was uh, asked to, to do a keynote speech at ibm's annual conference and it was in vegas and at the time, I was working for, well, the biggest IT company in Europe, uh, a company called Atos, uh, who do all the systems, all the healthcare systems, all the banking systems, the Olympics, all that. They, they used to be KPMG. Uh, anyway, so I um, was over there uh, to speak to IBM's thousand. It was the, they call them the thousand. Um, these are all world-class technologists, uh, mainly in the sort of back office, what we call back office, so big, big computer stuff. And they asked me to speak about multimedia. Um, and that was because at the time I was leading a team called the Impact Team, which were looking at how technology can be adapted to be used in different environments. So they asked me to come and speak about it. That was fine. 
right? So I turned up uh, to do my keynote. There was these thousand people in this massive theater. Um, and I had in my hand a briefcase. And I walked onto the stage and I got a round of applause, walked onto the stage with my briefcase and I opened my briefcase. In my briefcase was an overhead projector. I opened the overhead projector up and I started to do my speech using an overhead projector. And I'd got the old fashioned, I don't know if you remember, well, you, you probably will remember, remember the ones with the cardboard around them? So I got the slides made with cardboard around them and I was showing them slides and writing on the slides, etc. And very gradually, there was this murmur of collective dissatisfaction developing in the room and it grew and it grew and it grew. And I'd been deliberately bumbling a little bit. I'd been acting a bit of an Egypt, as they say in Ireland, you know, and, and, and I sort of put my head down and, and I looked up and I went, what's the matter? And one guy, bit of a lag, you always get them, particularly in technology companies, you know, this is supposed to be about multimedia and you're here with flip charts. I said to him, is multimedia not, is, is a flip chart not multimedia? And he looked at me and he went, well, yeah, I said, and could you do this with technology, as you call it? And I started to throw them into the audience. And I said, write your feedback on those slides and give me them back and I'll review them at the end, right? You kind of do that with PowerPoint back then. It was 10 years ago. You kind of do that with PowerPoint, guys. They started to laugh. Then the production team dropped the screen and I had a big full-on, you know, proper presentation. And the point of that is that, um, and there's, a, there's an adjunct to it. I'll tell you the adjunct in a minute. But we often, again, think that new is good, that, you know, that's not the case. What's good is good. The other one that, that uh, again, from a story of mine, when I was a scientist, we used to, I don't have one I can, we used to, do you remember the little slides we used to produce, the little, you know, when you had an old uh, uh, camera? Well, in the scientific world, what happens is you make, the, back then, we used to make them but on glass. So they were very, very expensive. So if you were doing a, a talk, and my first talk ever uh, that wasn't in a, an academic environment was to talk about the Lockerbie disaster in front of 100 academic pathologists and anatomists, because I was involved in that project. And we, were, we would be making these slides. And each slide, and I've tried to work it out, and I can't quite work it. I don't know if this is right, but I reckon each slide at the time was costing about £50 to make. So you had to get them right. You know, you couldn't afford just to bash some stuff down and then get it into a slide. And that slow thinking is something, again, I think we've often forgotten because, I mean, I haven't used PowerPoint for 10 years, but um, PowerPoint almost forces you into that, you know, bullet points and all that sort of stuff. But the glass slides slowed you down. And that meant the slideware, as they called it, was better quality. That meant the slideware had more thinking behind it because you weren't, there wasn't this convenient, convenient shortcut. So I often say to people, you know, is that a convenient shortcut? Because if they, they could slow down often, and I'm, I'm also a lifelong 30-year meditator and I've learned a lot from that practice, but if you could slow down and the system can slow you down, I think you think clearer. So I think that, it's a long answer to your question, but, that, but for me, that these are two stories that I think can point someone, can give them a compass to say, no, wait a minute, not everything's disposable and easy, like Kim Kardashian, not the human being, the product. Uh, of Kim Kardashian. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it does. And you referenced Ken Show earlier yeah. and, and how that's really helped you. Thinking fast and slow to Daniel Kahneman, work, you, you mentioned earlier about yeah. how the cynics and the pinks have translated what can be complex into yeah. the more simple digestible language. And reading Kahneman is more it's more difficult it's not an easier read easy yeah. read yeah. so it is that that translation of messaging and that's where you come in as sort of blurring or sort of molding the two words of science and art together yeah. well you see behind me i've got the rosetta stone behind me it's about translating i mean danny danny canman doesn't I mean most of that book now is out of date um and danny and his laboratory and the other laboratories around about him because there's a gaggle of them all close to each other he I and mean, I really admire him. I think he's a, a, an absolute, he's a genius. He deserves, you know, the, the accolades. But he now, he knows that in that book, that's not an easy to read book um, for the public, certainly. And and a lot of it, it, see, the big challenge these guys have got, particularly somebody like Danny, who works in a, a very difficult area. You know, we still have the public thinking that Freud and Jung are relevant, whereas in the scientific world, they've not been relevant for 30 years. Um, so he he's trying to introduce a new way of, thinking about this the brain sorry podcast the brain um and it's very difficult because it gets a lot of resistance but there is now a what i would call a coterie of 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 very good academics in that space but i have to say a lot even danny gets criticized from the harder scientists because the methodologies are very very difficult i mean one of my heroes in that space is oliver sacks and oliver sacks was ridiculed all through his life because he was a storyteller the scientists didn't like him because he did everything through story and everything through individual one-off case studies. Now, that isn't scientific, but I would argue it was beautiful and very worthwhile. But, you know, so, so you mentioned that reminds me that it's complex again. Back to complexity, Amy. And knowing that the future doesn't exist, let's just yeah. imagine for a second that we, we've gone forward 3,000 years. Yeah. And there are a group of people who are following the work of Scott MacArthur in the <laughs> same way that you follow the Stoics yeah. and and, your, and and the poetry yeah. of of all yesteryear. What what would message would be they be saying? Don't believe a word he says. <laughs> simple. It's that simple, and I mean it because if you there are very few uh, intellectual groups in history like the the Stoics. And the Stoics only really exist because they gave, they had the time, they were rich, well, most of them were rich and well, there was one or two were ex-slaves, but most of them were rich people, rich men uh, who came through and they have, uh, they, they, they live today, they, they exist today. But all the other movements have all gone, you know, and, and I include, you know, the movements from, from the 50s, the 60s and the 70s and indeed the 80s, they've all gone. So if you look in, in, in the scientific community, Everybody talks about standing on the shoulders of giants. That's right, because if all I could ever do is give somebody that moment where they go, I'm going to challenge that. I, I, I'm going to try and do that differently. I'm not going to do it uh, like everybody else does. You know, I'll, I'll do it differently. That would be enough for me. That would be a legacy enough. But no, I, they, they, they will, it, like everybody else, uh, I mean, I hope my legacy is for my children. I, I mean, academically and spe speaking-wise and professionally, it's highly unlikely I'm Albert Einstein. I'm, I'm in my 50s now. It's a bit late. Oh, I think I could challenge that and sure don't believe could. a word you're saying. <laughs> I, sure I, you I, I, I don't think that ages have got anything to do with it. And I think a lot of 
of very intelligent people have come to fantastic conclusions or or insights at late ages. They have, um, but it is an absolute fact that your IQ deteriorates after the age of 25. Um, so there are, there are uh, issues like wisdom, which is what I, I would frame what you've just said is about, and indeed, yeah, absolutely, wisdom. But to create something like an Einstein that um, it is usually something that happens in the 20s and early 30s, and then it's gone. And what about EQ? Well, EQ again is challengeable. There's not, it, 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 there is some good research in that space. Um, that's to do with the emotional uh, side of the, the, the of, of humanity. Um, I think that can help um, and it can develop, but it's a complex area. There's not, I mean, the only thing I would ever put my mortgage on and your mortgage on would be IQ, which is, is, is obviously very different to EQ. So are we in an information age? Are we in a purpose age? Are, are we in a future state of, of bio or, or AI stage? Where are we? Where do we sit right Gosh, now? Gosh, that's a cracking question. I mean, I, I don't I don't think, um, I mean, like any information's everywhere. That's true. I think we're in a paranoid stage. And, and I think that's because we can see ourselves in the mirror. It's not because we've changed, because we haven't. Um, it, it's because, I mean, social media, um, for all its faults, the bottom line with social media is it's a mirror, you know, and it, it's just showing us what we're really like. Whereas before, it's a bit like when you grow up in a little village, you know, you think the, the, the corner shop has the best bread in the world and you think the butcher's got the best meat and you think the beer's the best. Then you move out of town and you you, 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 you think back to it as if it was special. And it was in your life. It was special. Of course it was. But the bigger the, the bigger it comes, the smaller it gets. Uh, and, I, and I often talk about science fiction in this respect, because if you look at, like, there's the Star Trek model and the Babylon 5 model. So you've got the Babylon 5, I don't know if you know Babylon 5, but it's where all, all the different parts and cultures of the world are maintained under a common common purpose. Star Trek, is they all are the same, and it's it's the other, the aliens that are the difference. And I like the Babylon 5 model. I, I, I think coming together, experiencing and understanding our cultures is something that we're actually getting closer to in the information age or the technology age. It's maybe even the post-technology age, you know, because, um, I mean, iPhones have only got another five, six years, um, then they're gone. So that that's going to be a big step again, but it's so exciting. I, I mean, it's the safest the world's ever been. There's less poverty than there's ever been. Um, there's fewer wars than there's ever been. There's fewer terrorism than there's ever been. But you wouldn't know it, would you? You know, everybody's panicking. Um, so I think information... It's shown us in the mirror, and I don't think a lot of us like what we see. Yeah, uh, it's it's a really powerful metaphor there. And in terms of you referencing that the the Stoics are very rich. Yeah. In 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 sort of a financial perspective, but also from an academic perspective, you mentioned earlier about academic and financial poverty. Yeah. Where do we sit on on this? Is there a spectrum? Is there a scale on that right now? In terms of what against what other countries or what? In terms of it's a his, history. Well, we're at, we've got more, well, even in my lifetime, I mean, when I went to university, so that would be in the 80s, um, only about 3 to 5% of kids went to university. Now it's significantly over 70%. Um, is that a good thing? Um, on the face of it, you would probably say yes. Um, however, the quality of the education has changed. Um, I, mean, it's, I mean, many of my friends are teachers and they're doing very good work, but... There is there is some capability gaps here. It's why I mean one of the things that that sometimes people get wound up when I say 
I, I mean, I, I think it's an imperative that we go to Mars. Absolutely global imperative. It will save our lives. And that's not because I ever think we'll live on Mars. It's because it will encourage young women and young men to study science. That's what happened when we went to the moon. And China's looking at sending a woman uh, to, to the moon. Wow. You know, that will change the world like nothing else can. Um, you know, I don't like the fumes and the all the problems that, that these rich guys are causing with their, their spaceships, but we need to go to Mars. It will save the world. So a lot of that stuff, again, it's rooted in history. It's what happened when Apollo happened. You know, it's what happened when the, you know, it's all happened before. <laughs> so, to, so I think that, I think the education system, we need more people studying the STEM subjects. That's That's really important. There's not enough. Yeah, and I remember that dream of, of getting the man on the moon and yeah. it being so important as a, a bigger picture vision yeah. it, because of what it represented. It wasn't just a case of getting someone physically on the moon with the, the power of essentially the calculator that we use today. That's right. It was it was way more than that. Yeah, and yeah. again, it's having that aspiration for something else. Mm. Scott, I feel we could talk for hours <laughs> and, we're, and you know it's been a fabulous conversation. It really has. Thank How you. could people get in touch with you and find out more about the work you're doing? The best way um, is is use the hashtags all over the social media. So hashtag Artifact Live, that's Artifact Live, all one word, or go into uh, YouTube and put my name in, Scott MacArthur. Um, there's there's a couple of drummers of me called Scott MacArthur, but the name's fairly unusual, so you can find me there on YouTube, and I'm on all the other. Uh, pla I'm on. Uh, it's usually at uh, Scott underscore MacArthur on Twitter, on Twitch. Uh, on TikTok, it's all the same, all the same label. Amazing. Well, they'll all go in the show notes so people can grab them there. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Absolute pleasure. How would you like to conclude today's episode for me? Okay. Um, one, one, one of the things that I think, and I'll go right back to the, the point of your show, the why. There's a number that means a lot to me and um, if anyone ever sees the video, they can maybe try and find it behind me. But the number is 28,000. It's the most important number in your life, Amy, and it's the most important number in anyone's life because it's the average number of days that someone lives for. And my, I, I believe we, we're in, we talked about it earlier, we've gone beyond a lot of like technology, we've gone beyond a lot of information, a lot of knowledge, but we're very busy and we're very distracted by the social media mirror. So I think, you know, we need to stop being so claustrophobic about data. We need to drop a lot of the measurement in society. But I would give one measure that I think everyone should think about, and that measure is this. You know, take away all the toxins of the KPIs, key performance indicators, take them away, they're toxic. But here's one for you uh, to finish on. It's called time well spent. Anything you do should be time well spent, and that includes listening to me on this podcast. You know, if it's not time well spent, it's not worth doing. Thank you for listening to Focus on Why with me, Amy Rowlandson. To show your appreciation and to help other listeners understand what value you have received from tuning in today, please leave me an Apple Podcasts five-star review. Remember, the conversation doesn't end here. To keep it going, connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter or join the inspiring, uplifting and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. All the links are in the show notes. Have a purpose, have a plan, Focus on Why.